Blake, thank you for leading us in prayer. Good morning. Uh, we began last week a study that will take us into the next several weeks of the, the book of Jude. If you haven't already, please be joining me there. We stood last week and read all of it from start to finish. We won't do that this morning, but uh, we, we noticed that while it is a small letter, this is a letter that packs quite a punch. There's a lot uh, enclosed in these verses. One of the things that we began to see last week is, is a theme that will be repeated throughout of, of stability, uh, that, that God in Christ is leading us toward a, a stable life. We heard last week the description of God's people uh, when Jude says that in his calling, God is not only loving us, he is keeping us. We are loved and kept by God. Uh, that idea of security and stability uh, keeping by God is bookend, uh, it, it bookends the letter. You have it there. You have it in verse 24 where he says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. It's repeated there again. Um, but we, we have noticed and will continue to notice that those statements of confidence are not the only things we hear in the letter. The way we hear statements of confidence, for example, he is able to keep you from stumbling, intermixed with statements of caution for us as we're walking through this life. So verse 21 will call us to, to keep ourselves in the love of God. We could say of Jude, this, is a, this letter, it really is a... Um, celebration of stability, even as it is a call to stability. There's a balance between those two things, and balance uh, is an important part of stability. We, we, we do crave uh, a life that is rooted and grounded. Uh, we crave it for ourselves. It's what we want for our kids, for the children of this body. We want them to grow into a stable uh, life with the Lord. It's what we want for ourselves. We want to finish well, right? In verses 3 and 4 of this letter, Jude is stating his purpose for it. So again, this morning, we're going to look at two verses only in our time. That's not the pace we're going to take throughout this letter, but it's important for these early verses. Uh, and as we hear him lay out his intentions for writing this, we're going to continue to see this picture of stability. I mentioned balance just a moment ago. I am one of those unfortunate people that have not been blessed with a strong sense of balance physically. I have never did great at those sorts of, of competitions and races where you had to have balance. Um, I watch my boys do some things already, uh, and I thank God that they seem to have avoided my fate in some of that. Um, balance is very much on display in this letter. Uh, let, me, let me tell you what we're going to see uh, in our verses this morning, verses 3 and 4, before we read them. Uh, we see interplay between two balancing tones here. In each verse we see this. We see a mixture of confidence and caution. So in verse 3 we're going to see confidence in God's salvation, even as we hear a cautious refusal to celebrate early. Confidence and caution. We'll hear them again in verse 4. In verse 4 we'll hear a confidence in God's administration of history. He is guiding the ship, and we can be confident in that. But even as we hear that confidence, we will hear in verse 4 a cautious call to contend, and in fact to contend earnestly. Let's read these together so we can hear this. If you are able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? 
Jude, verses 3 and 4. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. And Father, we do pause now as we, as we come to your word. We're confronted by it, and we want to thank you for it. We see it as a great gift, a great protection to us. It is our food. Lord, make us hungry for your word this morning. Feed us by it, bless us with it, and Lord, we pray for open eyes and open ears as we are confronted by the mercy of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Do you hear the immediate confidence that he comes out with here in verse 3? It's a confidence in the reality and present um, possession of God's salvation. Verse 3 says, Beloved, he reiterates what we heard last week in verse 1, they are loved by God, and therefore Jude will do no less. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. And we'll just pause there for a moment and notice his eagerness. Uh, He starts here with an affirmation. Uh, That salvation that he has just spoken of concerning them, that's assured to them in verse 1, because they are the called of God, which means they're loved by God and they're kept by God, that salvation belongs to him as well. This is something that he shares with them. It's common to them. And what we're hearing about at this moment is uh, the letter that Jude had planned to write. You notice he had intended a different letter originally than the one that that he's actually writing. He had planned to write this letter, and he was going to spend it in celebration of the certainty of God's saving plan for them. That's what he was going to write to them about, and he was eager to do it. It's something that we shouldn't rush past this eagerness or this zeal that he had to write to them, because it does tell us some things about how he understands salvation. Now, he speaks of salvation as a present possession for the believer. Do you notice that? This is something that they share currently. And notice that that confidence in their present salvation is coming from somebody who clearly also recognizes that there is a future aspect to God's salvation. Jude, as we'll see next week, is going to remind his hearers in verse 5 of the real need for them to persevere. He's going to urge them in verse 21 to keep themselves in the love of God. And he ends that statement this way. He says, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy that leads to eternal life. There's something we're still waiting for. And yet this is a salvation that they share currently together. It's not a contradiction in any sense. Uh, It's an acknowledgement of what the Bible repeatedly affirms, that there there is, when we think of what God has done for us in Christ and saving us, there is an already element to that, and there is a not yet element to it. In fact, the Bible will speak of our salvation in Christ in three tenses, past, present, and future. We see places like Ephesians 2.8, which says, For by grace you have been saved 
This is a completed in the past, ongoing impacts in the present. You have been saved through faith, he says. But that same writer will say in 1 Corinthians 1, 18, this. He'll say, the, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. You hear that difference? To us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He speaks of it like that again in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And then we have places like Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath to come. Speaking of something we are waiting for in this. So we're comfortable with this reality that in a true sense salvation is something we now possess as children of God, even as we are told to see it as something that we are awaiting and something that we're supposed to be striving toward. We hold these things together. But for us here, Jude is displaying a confidence in that present reality. The salvation that God has provided and that they have presently, because after all, they are being kept for Jesus Christ. Now, see, here's where we start to see a balance in Jude. Because no sooner does he mention and celebrate that certainty. This is a salvation that, we, uh, that is, uh, is common to us. No sooner does he mention that, that, that uh, certainty that he immediately inserts a caution to his readers. Look with me again. It says, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So what we see is that confidence, even complete confidence in the salvation of God, doesn't mean early celebration. Now, I know about early celebration. I am a Dallas Cowboys fan. I remember where I was in 1993 when the Cowboys were in the Super Bowl and Leon Lett picked up a fumble and ran it back for a touchdown. You remember where you were when that happened? Maybe we don't. But it, it, it ended up not being a touchdown, was it? Because five yards out, he starts his celebration, dancing his way into the end zone. And the guy catches up to him, knocks it out of his hands, and now that's all that any of us remember him for. <laughs> that was an early celebration. We only need to see that once before we realize there's something, there's something wrong with early celebration. And just notice that for Jude... The confidence that he lives in concerning their common salvation does not mean that there's going to be no circumstances arise in this life that will lead him to forego celebration and instead to urgently warn and legitimately to warn. Although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you. Michael Green writes about that wording, and he says, the phrasing here suggests that it was a somewhat unwelcome task. But, quote, I felt I had to write. And the reason for that, Green goes on, he says, the true pastor is also a watchman. You know that that's the case. That this is the mandate that God places on uh, the church leaders that he appoints. It is the calling that he gives to under shepherds. Like the role that Jude is filling here. Can I read to you a couple of pretty uh, strongly worded passages in Scripture? 
where we get this sense from the Lord. One of them is in the Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. This is what God has spoken to Ezekiel as he is putting him in place to serve this sort of leading, guiding, watching role. He says this, The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require, <clears throat> but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity. Listen to this. But you will have delivered your soul. Oh, my goodness. Um, in the New Testament, Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 31, uh, Paul has called the leaders of the church of Ephesus together, and he is he's speaking to them directly. And this is what he says to them. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw the disciples away after them. Does that sound like exactly the situation that Jude is confronting here? You remember uh, the writer to the Hebrews, Hebrews 13, 17. This is in the New American Standard Version. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable to you. This is the calling uh, and the language that's used. Uh, There is a a sense of guarding over souls and a sense of accountability here so that the under-shepherd of God must be a watchman. This thing that Jude has to do, that he found it necessary to do, uh, all of God's under-shepherds are called to do, and it can be a very difficult thing. Do you know that that sort of watching, which what does that involve? This involves uh, being on guard for, for false ideas, false um, conclusions, uh, lifestyles that would, would act like leaven within the body and, and, and cause damage. This involves noticing those things, confronting things, urging people in a warning sort of way, even being critical sometimes of things. And that kind of behavior can come with a reputation. It can make one appear, in certain contexts, uncaring, harsh. Especially in a generation like ours that takes any sort of confronting as an act of hatred. But it's something that must be done. It's something that must be done even as that man has to then guard himself against temptation. And this is something that's true of of the leaders of the church, but it's true for every one of us as we guard and watch over each other. Uh, When we find ourselves in those places, when a church leader finds himself in places of needing to, uh, to confront or needing to correct, 
those circumstances can tempt us toward anger, um, impatience, um, all sorts of things that church leaders are required not to be like. Titus 1.7 commands that those who are qualified to lead God's people must be slow to anger. They must not be, one of my favorite words in, in this, they must not be pugnacious, tending to, to enjoy fighting, that sort of thing. First uh, Timothy 3 says they must be gentle and peaceable. So we're called to be these things even as there is a watching and a caring and a uh, willing to confront when necessary. You may know some, some individuals personally who um, seem to thrive on confrontation, enjoy those sorts of confrontational situations. I don't know that that would reflect the kind of character that we're being called to when it speaks of those requirements. But when it is necessary, those appointed by God must step forward and find their voice. And we see it here in the person of Jude. As eager as he is to speak to them uh, about the glory of their common salvation, when a shepherding need arose, that eagerness took a back seat. And instead of celebrating early, God's word to these believers through Jude is that they must contend. They are to contend for the faith. It's a form of a word where you can hear our word agonize. It's agonizomai that they're supposed to do. Contend. This is what Paul does in 2 Timothy 4 when he says, I fought the good fight. That's what he did. It's what Jesus commands of us in Luke 13 when, it's, when he said to strive to enter the narrow gate. We're supposed to contend. We're supposed to, to eagerly fight toward uh, entering here. Uh, that's the word uh, agonizomai. But here, it takes that word and puts on a preposition on front, epi, which means over or above. So it's telling us to overfight, to over. There's a great intensity here in what we're commanded to do. That's why some translations put it here. They say, contend earnestly for the faith. Do you hear the, uh, the passion that we're called to here? It's what's commanded of his hearers, and this morning it's what's commanded of us as we sit under this passage. We are commanded here to take the traditions, the doctrinal truths concerning Christ, the reality of the church and who we are, these things that have been handed down to us, and look on them with tremendous passion and concern and zeal. And how are you doing with that this morning? We have been now for some time reciting together as a church body questions and answers in a, catech- in, a, in a form of a catechism that lay out for us what is it that, we have been, that has been handed to us. Do we see these realities as urgent, as precious to us? It's what Jude is giving to us in his appeal. These Christians that he writes to, who are loved and kept by God, must not sit around passively celebrating their salvation. Life in this world is such that they must contend earnestly for the faith. Let's notice as well that this is a specific faith. He's not telling them to contend for faith, for belief in a general sense. They're told to contend for a particular faith. If you were here last week, you might remember that when he 
spoke of his audience as the called. He put in these descriptions in there. They are, they are the loved by God and kept for Christ Jesus called. That's who they were. He does that same thing here with the word faith. What they're to contend earnestly for is the once for all delivered to the saints faith. That's the faith they're supposed to contend for. In other words, it's not a faith that is subject to invention or addition or imagination. It's a faith that we have a responsibility for because it has been handed down to us. And it is indeed the faith. Speaking certainly of what has been given to us by the apostles directly is what he's referring to. He'll mention them in verse 7. The antidote here is to remember the teaching of the apostles. But Ephesians 2.20 calls the teaching of the apostles and prophets the foundation of God's household. We see the results of this laid foundation in the word of God. And we are to contend for it. We all understand here this morning that the original hearers of this letter are long since dead and buried. They're done. Right now, it is our turn. We have been given some years where the faith once for all delivered to the saints has been put into our hands for safekeeping. And what state will it be in when we hand it off? So we've heard Jude here so far display confidence in God's salvation, even as he cautions them to not celebrate early. As we come to verse 4, we'll we'll see both of these themes again. And let's start by noticing Jude's confidence in, uh, we can put it this way, confidence in God's administration of history. He is describing things for them. He's describing in verse 4, current events for them. These are things going on right now in their life. He's going to follow that by laying out a series of historical events to back up his claims here. And he's calling them to a future obedience and faithfulness. What we need to see as he lays all of this out, even in a warning way, is that at no point is Jude ever concerned that things are spiraling out of control in terms of the plans of God. Very certainly there was need for him to write urging them toward something, toward dramatic action and intensity. But he is not worried that things are out of control. And we can see that especially in the way that he describes these men that he's beginning to warn us about. Look again at verse 4. He says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, we'll talk about that in a moment, who were long ago designated for this condemnation. Now let's think together about this description here. That's, this is pretty fascinating the way he has put that, isn't it? It is the sort of thing we read and say, I need to read that again. These people were long ago designated for condemnation. What is he saying? Well, the word that he uses here literally means written before. This condemnation of theirs was written about before. And in fact, it was written long ago. We could use perhaps this English term. We could say uh, that their condemnation was pre-scripted long ago. There's some debate about just what he's referring to. Some people think that he's using the letter of 2 Peter to write his letter, so he's referring to the condemnation that Peter wrote about in 2 Peter. But that seems odd to me. 
It's not that long ago. And he, he's speaking of things written long ago, using a word that often refers to prophecy. I don't think that's what he's doing. More likely, what he's doing is speaking about the predictions of the, of the, of the prophets. And that certainly sets the scene best for what he's going to do in the rest of this letter, because he's going in that direction. We could restate verse 4a, this first part of this. I think we could restate it this way. When people creep in unnoticed to do harm, not only did God already know of their deeds, he had already written them down and has already sentenced their condemnation. Now, do you hear the category of confidence that that presents for us? This is complete confidence in something. That amidst our uncertainty and our trials, which are real, and which we must be cautious as we walk through. But amidst those things, God is always perfectly administering history according to his good purposes. That's a certainty that I need to be reminded about. No doubt for them. It was very comforting to hear him say of these tremendous threats in their midst that their condemnation was long ago designated. One man I read put it this way. I appreciated how he worded this. He said, The actions of people, however contrary they seemed to appear to the divine will, were thus in no way outside the control of God. History has continued to run its predetermined course in spite of various forms of evil and catastrophes. The false teachers in the midst of Jude's community will therefore also not interfere with the divine plan. You think that's something that we need to be uh, remembering in our day? Not a single thing is happening. Not a single law is being passed or removed. Not a single movement is progressing in any way that will interfere with the divine plan. Not one. Not ever. So according to Jude, we sit back and open our sodas and put our feet up, right? You see exactly how he is meeting us where we are today. We can be certain about that as we refuse to celebrate early and instead zealously contend for the faith that has been entrusted to us. Now, see, if Jude had swung on the pendulum, like we tend to do, all the way over to a confidence that brings smugness and comfort and apathy, then this would be the end of his letter. I was going to write about our common salvation And for a moment, I considered what you're going through with false teachers. But then I remembered that God perfectly administers history. So on second thought, you're good to go. And I'll see you in heaven. But he does not do that. In fact, the caution that we see now in verse 4 is pretty comprehensive in what he's going to end up doing here. We're seeing now a cautious call to contend in verse 4. And it's a call that is very informative. He's going to tell them why they need to contend, against whom they are contending, and against what specifically, not just the people in general, but what is their message, what is the idea that they're to contend against. So let's hear him do that. Why do they need to contend? They need to contend earnestly because, verse 4, for certain people have crept in unnoticed. And when it says that they crept in unnoticed, that's all a single word in what he wrote down. And this is, this is the only place in the New Testament where this word appears, that we translate creep in unnoticed. So that makes it difficult for us sometimes when that happens. 
But these words are used in other places, and so we can go outside of Scripture and learn what these words meant to them. Um, one great place that does that is uh, Kittle's Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. He talks about this word and then speaks of Jude 4 specifically and gives a suggestion for us how we could think of it here. They suggest that we translate it this way, that these men have insinuated themselves into the community. Now that is fascinating to me. Crept in unnoticed, seems like no one, is, no one noticed that they were there. They insinuated themselves into the community. Sounds a bit different to me. There is, there is blatant deception about who they are going on here. And the situation that's being suggested by this word is that these people have joined the group. Uh, many think that these are traveling teachers. If that's the case, then they have come now for a time to be with this group. Uh, they're claiming allegiance to the same doctrinal beliefs and convictions that the group holds to knowing that they, in fact, do not share those convictions. They say they do. Now, that, it's, it's, you know, these things are complicated. It, it, that knowledge might have been there from the beginning. They may have come in knowing full well what they were doing. They might have come in genuinely agreeing and have shifted now in terms of what they're teaching. But either way, the point is that rather than spelling that out clearly and being honest... They are purporting to teach what is orthodox, even as they twist it. Yes, we believe this. Now, let me tell you what this really means. Here's what this means. It's a nasty sort of situation. Because it can be so challenging to root out. We're using the same vocabulary now. You say you will believe this. Well, I believe this. And the arguments, when that happens, are subtle ones. They're not out there in your face. They're, they're subtle changes. Do you see why it is so important that we are always working to understand what we believe better and better? Because it is not enough to know that I agree with these words. People will come and use those words and they will twist them. You remember Peter's warning that that's what people do with Paul? They were already doing it with Paul in their day. He said, these, Paul can be hard to understand, and these wicked ones that I am warning you against twist Paul to their own destruction. That's what he says in Second Peter. We have this sort of thing going on in our time today. We have whole denominations that require assent to a particular set of doctrines that have teachers and pastors in them assenting to them and teaching the exact opposite day in and day out. One example that I have been in the midst of myself because of where I went to school, there was some issues going on. Um, there, was, there, was a, there was a professor named Peter Enns who taught at Westminster, uh, Philadelphia, Westminster Theological Seminary, the, the fortress of biblical inerrancy for so long and continues to be. And he, like every other faculty member, had affirmed in writing his allegiance to the Westminster Confession of Faith, which says that the Bible is a book of infallible truth and divine authority. And then in 2005, he publishes a book that tries to redefine our understanding of why the Bible is reliable and how it's reliable. It is reliable, he says. Of course it's reliable. 
But what we have to understand is that the Bible is like Jesus. The Bible is a, is a human and divine book, just like Jesus was human and divine. And we shouldn't complicate things by insisting that it be without error. Um, we should just let it speak for itself. And by his reading of it, Genesis is a collection of myths that never happened, and there are contradictions throughout the Bible, and that's really something we should celebrate because it shows us something about God. Just like we learned in Jesus, that God is willing to get his hands dirty. He's willing to get messy in his work to redeem us. Do you hear how nasty and subtle that is? And it took them two years to figure out just what they needed to do with this man. They finally suspended him after two years of the books being published, and then out he went. And now he continues his ministry and teaches that Adam and Eve never existed and has a website dedicated to helping people celebrate what he calls their aha moments, the moment when they realized that the Bible is not really what they had been taught it was as they grew up in church. And he has a regular publication of those, of those stories. Now, I bring him up. What ties him and that situation to what I hear here in Jude is simply is not just the error itself, but it's the false claims of unity. The unwillingness to call a spade a spade. They have crept in unnoticed. They have insinuated themselves into the community, convincing us that they belong. Well, so who are these people? How will I know them? That's a pretty important question. And he will describe them in many different ways throughout this letter. Um, but here in verse 4, he begins by, uh, by identifying the main manifestations of their error. And we're going to need to keep these in mind as we continue to go through. There are three of them. First is that they are ungodly. That's not as general a term as we think it is. The word means, lexically, quote, violating norms for a proper relation to deity. That's why some versions say impious instead of ungodly or irreverent. Violating norms that are, uh, for a proper relation to deity. In other words, they are identified by a general lack of respect for the things of God, the ways of God, the words of God. There is a casualness with which they treat the Lord. Second, it says that they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. They say what Paul said in Romans 6, 1, let us uh, continue in sin so that grace may abound. Except that's what Paul was saying we must never say. What shall we say? Shall we say this? May it never be. How can we who died to sin still live in it? But this is how they are living and what they're teaching. Let us continue in sin so that grace may abound. In their worldview, God's grace is a reality that fosters sensuality. And again, notice the subtlety here. They're not denying God's grace. They're the champions of God's grace. They're the ones who really value the precious grace of God. You're the ones who are failing to really appreciate the consequences of the gracious God that we have. They're not denying with their mouth the explicit doctrines. They're redefining. They're twisting. Now, I want to do something here that was interesting to me, at least. Maybe it'll be helpful to you. I'd like to reread the definition of that word. Uh, ungodly, 
And then I'd like to read the definition of the word that he uses for sensuality. And I want to see if you can hear some common ideas in here. All right? Ungodly, first word. Violating norms for a proper relation to deity. All right? Or irreverent. The word sensuality is a word that means lack of self-constraint, which involves one in conduct that violates all bounds of what is socially acceptable. Now, in this case, the society whose bounds are being violated is the church of God. Do you hear what both of those words share in them? That they both share a total disregard for established boundaries. There's a sense that my my freedom in God, really what it looks like is a life of pushing boundaries, which sounds very much like our, our culture today. But if we're not careful, that can begin to be what the church sounds like that there's some sort of joy and pride in the experience of pushing boundaries, challenging the idea that there is a proper relation to deity, violating those norms, challenging the idea that there is a conduct that violates all bounds of what is socially acceptable, instead violating those things, a pride in pushing boundaries. And remember here that they are using the doctrine of the grace of God to do it. Now, if we are hearing these descriptions well, we're going to start to see why Jude chooses some of the words that he does and comes out swinging as hard as he will. He is not friendly to them here in this letter as we go forward. But even some of the specific word choices he uses suddenly become a little bit more uh, understandable. For example, do you remember, um, now that we're, we see the, this picture of... Um, the sorts of arguments that are being presented by the false teachers, the casual attitude toward holiness, does it make more sense that he would start this letter by calling himself a slave of Christ? He didn't have to use that word to describe himself. He picked that word. And it seems that he did it intentionally, knowing who it is he's calling them to set themselves apart from. And that declaration, I am the doulos of Christ, the slave of Christ, is exactly how he rounds out these descriptions in verse 4. Do you see it? Do you see the third and final description of these uh, false teachers? They are ungodly. They pervert God's grace into sensuality. And third, they deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. That is fundamentally what they do. And all of these judgments that they're making about um, what is worthwhile, what is really sacred, they hold themselves as being the ones who decide where the lines should be. And in so doing, they are denying Jesus' claim of that on their lives. They are denying that He, in fact, is their Master and their Lord. Now, you can look through the letter of Jude, and you will find no explicit criticism of their doctrine of Christ. He doesn't quote some heresy concerning the being or deity of Christ and refute it here. And what I take from that is that uh, we, can, uh, we can deny the true Jesus. We can deny him as our Lord without ever saying anything about who he is. In Luke 6.46, Jesus did not say, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and deny the doctrine of my divinity? He says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Right? Why do you not bow before my words, trembling. 
Do these seem like people who do very much trembling? Now, we might want to caution ourselves from a collective snort at these wretched people because the next question that has to come to us is, how much trembling have I done lately? See the wrongness. How is my walk before the Lord in my thought life, in my actions? Am I trembling before Him? I can say whatever I want to say. What does my life show? What do my loves show? What does, what does my time show? What do my private thoughts show? What would my children say about me? What we believe and confess concerning Christ is crucial. But we are people who are capable of saying a thing about Christ and believing something very different. And our life is lived out of our out of our real convictions, not out of our words. As we move toward closing this morning, I'd like to read to you a couple of things uh, that I actually saw on Denny Burke's website this last week. You remember Denny Burke? He came and did our, uh, our conference last year um, from the CBMW. He, he shared two things, uh, one of them from the Valley of Vision, the, the Book of Puritan Prayers, I was, I was thinking about this notion of trembling, and I saw that on there, and I thought, okay, well. Um, so the first one here is, is a prayer called The First Sin of the Day. It's, um, you can tell as we go through it. It's speaking about our tendency when we wake up. This is a man praying this who has woken up, has prayed to God as his first, the first thing he's done, and then has realized as he went on the day, that he did that, he did it in a way that did not, was not worthy of the one he was praying to. Maybe we can relate to that. This is what he prays. O Lord of grace, I have been hasty and short in private prayer. O quicken my conscience to feel this folly, to bewail this ingratitude. My first sin of the day leads into others. And it is just that you should withdraw your presence from one who waited carelessly on you. That's beautiful. I'm at a place in my life that I have been trembling. The other thing I saw in there is he, he quoted Second Chronicles 12, 8, which is talking about uh, a time when God is judging his people, he's going to be sending them into slavery. And God said this, he said, they will become his slaves so that they may learn the difference between serving me and serving the kings. The kings of other lands. They will be his slaves so that they can learn the difference between what it's like to be my slave and what it's like to be others. If, if challenges pertaining to your current submission to King Jesus, what we've been seeing here. If those challenges are painful, praise God that he is loving you by bringing it to mind today. And I say that because of what, what Burke wrote after he quoted Second Chronicles 12. I thought this was so good. He said, Better to learn in the gentle classroom of God's word than in the hard chambers of his discipline. 
Here we stand together this morning, being taught in the gentle classroom of God's word. Are you thankful for his kindness to you this morning? But what will you do with it? Heavenly Father, we thank you for for this hour. We have each lived as enemies before you, deserving no good thing. But Lord, you have pursued us, you have washed us, you have renewed our minds, you've renewed our hearts, and you've put us in fellowship with a family who's going through the same things. Lord, thank you that we have been able to gather together with our family this morning to think your thoughts, to pray to you together, to sing to you together. Lord, we know we do not desire you as we should. But we used to run from you. We used to hate you. And you have given us new hearts. Lord, continue to sanctify us through your word. Lord, we thank you for the good, good things you have done for us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.